I am really proud of the work of the Panhandle Gives. That is our nine-day giving campaign that happens the Monday before Thanksgiving through Giving Tuesday. And over the years, the seven years that we've had that program, we've raised $20 million for organizations across the 26, the 26 counties of the Texas Panhandle. You're listening to Buff Speak, the official podcast of the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business at West Texas A&M University. I am Dr. Nick Gerlich, your host, as we meet up with the thought leaders making an impact today. Often the hidden side of business is those organizations in the nonprofit realm. They function just like their for-profit cousins, but do not have a profit motive. And in many cases, they exist simply because of a very purpose-driven mission. They're not always there to sell something or to support research. Instead, their purpose is about giving back to a community, acting as a go-between among individual, corporate, foundational, and other donors, and then the recipients. The Amarillo Area Foundation fits that description closely. Founded back in 1957, it has very specific goals for the panhandle, meaning, of course, only the top 26 counties of Texas. Those are the best ones, right? And and the roughly 430,000 people who call it home. My guest today is Brock Carter, Director of Marketing and the Panhandle Gives Campaign at Amarillo Area Foundation. Brock, tell us about the AAF and what you do there, and how do you market a nonprofit such as this one? Sure. So the Amarillo Area Foundation is a community foundation. Uh, We were actually the second community foundation founded in the state of Texas. We kind of started as a um, a medical board. Uh, There was a group of citizens that were wanted to have a world class medical facility here in in the Panhandle and place that in Amarillo, and that's kind of how we began. Our work has continued to be um, with grants and scholarships. Um, my role is really the marketing director, so I'm telling the stories, I'm sharing the ideas of what we're trying to do in our community. We've had a strategic plan, focus change, I think we'll talk about that a little bit later, in 2018, and we've really been focusing on three com- key components that are keeping organizations from thriving. So my job is to really tell that story um, through our social media channels, through our blog post and podcast, as well as external communication and different uh, mediums that we use. Um, you know, where one of our biggest, uh, most effective mediums is newspapers in those small communities in the Texas Panhandle. They continue to be that public square in those little communities. So you are seeing how impactful that we are seeing a very large impact of uh, those ads and placing uh, uh, press releases in those communities. Wow. See, that surprises me, especially as someone who teaches digital marketing, because I've told my students for so long that newspapers are all but dead. Right. Uh, And in many regards, they are either dead or dying. We've lost so many papers in America in the last 20 years, and yet you're saying these small-town papers are still the lifeblood of those uh, those areas and a, a primary means of communication. Yeah, it, it, it was interesting to me. You know, we are always trying to, you know, we are the Amarillo Area Foundation. Um, sometimes that means people or people think that we are the Amarillo Foundation. And really the Amarillo area, when you travel and you live and you live in Pampa or Borger, you say, oh, I live in the Amarillo area. It's really what that was meant to be. But uh, uh, the 40, more than 40, some years it's 60% are our uh, grants go out to rural organiz- rural organizations and and only 40% uh, 
to 60% stay in the Amarillo, uh, Potter and Randall County areas. So we are really the the community foundation for the Texas Panhandle. Yeah, so Amarillo is really just a reference point. I know if I'm telling somebody in Texas where I'm from, I can stay, say Canyon and get away with it. But if I'm in Nashville, Tennessee, I better say Amarillo. Yeah, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so um, how has uh, your organi- organization evolved through the last 66 years? I mean, that's a, that's a long time. That's a little bit longer than I've been around. You've done a lot since then. Well, you know, we, we've we always focused on, a, a, you know, Mrs. Harrington, uh, Sybil B. Harrington was one of our, um, the, actually the Don and Sybil Harrington Foundation is a supporting organization of our organization. So they are a part of our, of the Emerald Area Foundation. We've always been really involved in the arts. We've always been really involved in, um, you know, helping communities thrive through grants that, I mean, we, we've bought a lot of ambulances over the years. We've focused a lot of our dollars in different parts and different uh, philanthropic uh, places. But what we saw um, happening, we had, a, we had a really active board in 2017, 18, and they were really focusing on like, okay, we gave this grant here, this grant here, this grant here, but what is that doing for the communal good? What is that doing to move the needle on our mission statement, which is to improve quality of life for Texas Panhandle residents. And uh, we, we we contracted some research. Um, actually, WT interns led that research. They were phenomenal. And they started to look at what are the three, what are the things that are keeping communities from being able to have the best community that they can have? And in that, there was three trends that started to emerge, and they are education, healthcare, and economic opportunity. And and, and I know I'm going to say healthcare, and you're going to hear me talk about something that doesn't feel like healthcare, but it is. Uh, so we were looking at um, uh, rural access to uh, mental health. There's just not a lot of there's not a lot of uh, commun- there's not a lot of things that communities in, in rural communities have for mental health needs and meeting the needs of those citizens. So that's one of our strategies with underneath the uh, healthcare umbrella. And the number two focus area is food insecurity. Now, I used to work at the food bank. I'm very familiar with what food insecurity looks like in our communities and was really proud of our organization for really putting our our really putting our name out there and saying, like, we understand that this is really a huge barrier. And it sounds, when I say that, sometimes people have the pushback of, well, that doesn't sound like healthcare. Well, if you don't have the right proper nutrition and you don't have access to adequate nutrition, it becomes a healthcare crisis very quickly. And you can see uh, the data will show students who are not thriving uh, in school often don't know where their next meal is coming from. Adults with aggressive behavior, sometimes it's just that war zone of poverty. And if you're in poverty, you are food insecure. Now, food insecurity is way bigger than poverty, but... Um, so the, that's kind of what our un- healthcare umbrella looks like. And then under education, we started to look at um, uh, literacy and young folks. Now, we've always kind of focused on higher education. We have a lot of programs that exist inside of the of the foundation, like ACE and Thrive and our scholarship program that focus a lot on higher education. And we've always been involved in higher education. Our first scholarship fund was actually established in 1977. So we've been um, we've been um, sending out millions of dollars a year in scholarships. A lot of those come to WT and, and, and Amarillo College, both of those institutions. Um, but we have never really focused on that first five years of a child's life. And um, 
it becomes increasingly important um, when you think about a child who can't learn, is not on gr third grade reading level by third grade, that becomes a huge problem because after third grade, you are no longer learning to read. You are reading to learn. So if you haven't hit that metric, that's why it's a really important piece, a really important metric for students to hit. When you don't do that, you just fall further and further behind because you haven't mastered reading and comprehension. And so we've been focused, we've got a lot of uh, strategy around uh, and working with organizations that are focusing on literacy for young folks, but it really begins before third grade. It really begins birth through five. That's and and that access to early child care and uh, the, you know preschool, really quality preschools and really quality daycare. All that stuff is really important to the child hitting those metrics in third grade. And then also under our education, um, we have a uh, higher higher education strategy, which is aligning students with uh, the jobs and optimal jobs that are going to be uh, in career paths that exist in our communities. We want students to find great opportunities within our communities and um, aligning their their outcomes of what they want to do with what they're getting their degree in. And then there is another strategy inside of that, which is the opportunity youth. And I don't know if you know what opportunity youth is, but it's people, it's young folks that are 16 to 23 that don't really, are not in, in education. They haven't gotten a degree. They haven't gotten some kind of skill or something afterwards. We can't track where they are. They're just existing and we're probably working, but, um, working for wages that are not family sustaining. And so that's, we're really, we just actually were awarded a grant to kind of get a working group together on how to access those students. And then how do we, how do we get information from them on what's keeping them? What are the barriers that are keeping them out of getting uh, some sort of certificate, some sort of degree that leads to a family sustaining wage. So that group is meeting and then they will, um, be look, reaching out to some opportunity youth to really um, give that inf to inform that those decisions and inform that work. It's really exciting work. I think that um, you know we all agree that students need to get some kind of education after high school, and we stop short of saying a four year degree. I know that this is West Texas A and M University, and I I believe that a lot of students need to get a four year degree, but. There are a lot of students who need to get trades or uh, Microsoft certifications or coding certifications, and there is a whole workforce of people that can that that uh, that four year degree plan doesn't work for them. And it in really we're working to make sure that they know that those opportunities exist. That you don't if you want to go into HVAC. I, I have friends that that work in HVAC right now, and they cannot find enough people to work for them. So there's just a real need in those trades and other opportunities too. And of course, we we continue to fund scholarships and important work that exists in higher education, um, both community and university, community college and university settings. So you, you mentioned uh, a couple of minutes ago, the whole literacy issue here by third grade. How closely related do you think are all of, well, the economic and social factors like uh, food insecurity or um, family problems, all that, how are they related to literacy, if at all? Well, that's what we're finding is that the three things that we've kind of uh, 
we've figured out that we have been focusing on, they, they overlap. I mean, there's just such overlap. And of course, if a child doesn't have the adequate nutrition they need or the adequate access to food, that's going to affect their read, their ability to read and focus in school. I mean, that, that is obvious. That third, um, that third thing kind of brings it back that, uh, economic opportunity and that work we've been focusing on, um, really f uh, having access to broadband um, from everybody. And we uh, obviously the glare, I don't want to use the, I don't want to use the word that triggers everybody, but COVID really showed us how inadequate we have, uh, have it here in the Texas Panhandle. It is hard. It is from an economic standpoint for companies coming in to provide fiber and um, high speed internet. It's really impossible um, from a financial standpoint. And, We've really been advocating for, um, you know, just different things to make sure that people have access to that. Because, of course, if you want to do rural mental health, you're going to need to have access to high-speed internet so that you can meet a virtual counselor. All of those things are related. The other strategy kind of underneath that economic opportunity umbrella is the arts. There is a data point. There's some data points that suggest that um, communities that have a thriving arts community or thriving arts culture, uh, they are, have a higher quality of life. And so we we created the arts and culture fund, um, because we've always given, we've always given grants to arts communities and arts organizations. That's, that is Mrs. Harrington's passion. That is obviously a passion of our organization. But what we were finding is that arts community, arts organizations, uh, grant requests were also being in, uh, being introduced with like hunger initi initiatives or uh, women domestic violence situations. And that's like not fair to compare those two. They're not really compatible. So this really creates an avenue for arts organizations across the panhandle to have their own specific uh, grant grant cycle that... Um, they can, and we, we really kind of lowered the bar on, they can, they can get dollars for marketing needs that they have, or they can get dollars for set pieces, or we bought a curtain last year for the Burger Theater that, because if you don't have a curtain, how do you change your set? So just really kind of lowering the bar and expectation. And I don't mean in quality. I just mean, there's a lot that goes, that goes into a grant request and there's a lot of data and details. And we really didn't want that to hinder those arts community, those art, the arts community to do that. So, and then also underneath that um, umbrella of economic opportunity is access to uh, high quality daycare. We have a, it, there is no, there is no secret that we have a daycare uh, shortage or desert um, in the Texas Panhandle, especially in our rural communities. That'll, that's really tough for a mom and dad working um, to not have adequate daycare and to have quality daycare where they're learning this, the education pieces that are going to help them meet those uh, pieces, uh, the, the learning to get the literacy piece done by third grade and really uh, achieve what they can. And so we've partnered with communities. Um, our first one that we kind of partnered with was in Claude, um, and they have like 40 kids that go to that daycare it allows parents to have two income households, which helps them economically and also creates jobs in the community and um, adds vibrancy. I mean, I think we went and talked to the uh, community. It's Little Colts. Uh, it's called Little Colts uh, Daycare in Claude, and they were just 
over the moon. They have great facility. They've got great learning objectives and just a really great facility that allows parents to feel safe leaving their kids in a place. Um, and so that's just an extremely important part um, as an economic driver. Now, it's economic opportunity, not economic development. So there is a little bit of a difference in that. Well, I see the importance of having uh, accessible daycare and affordable daycare because you're looking at about a thousand bucks a month for each child. And, and that second income could get eaten up pretty fast once you factor in that and sure. taxes and you know wardrobe and lunches and travel back and forth yeah that whole second income could be wiped out absolutely so it's a, those so that's kind of where we're focusing our energies over the next long term we've never kind of had a strategic focus that's like this so this is all new work for us we're you know we're learning it and we're getting the data and understanding and working with community partners it has been a huge learning curve for us. I mean, we went through some change management training at the foundation, and we really have been getting our staff on board and understanding that this is a different, you know, just a different way for us to approach our work. Let's let's go back to broadband. That's always been a, an interest area for me. I, sure. I live in the country, not terribly far, but six <laughs> miles from town. That's country. Yes. You know, I can look out my kitchen window, I can see Canyon, but they can't see me, which is actually pretty nice when you think about it. But um, it wasn't until about four or five years ago that I had reliable broadband. And I mean, hardwired broadband, because up until then, I was using a variety of different wireless service providers that were okay, but not great. And it, it was during COVID that we really put it to the test because I had my two daughters with me and we're all streaming Netflix, different things at the same time. And somehow we managed to watch all three without having to go into buffer mode. So we knew we had a good a good setup <laughs> at that point, but not everybody else does. And I think it, it's a lot of um, the fact that there's so many miles separating some residents from communities that have broadband. I mean, you if unless you can get really really good wireless you're going to you're depending on hardwired internet that has to be laid and that's not cheap and we got a lot of miles out here to do that um i know there are efforts at the national level president biden would like to remedy this problem as well i think that's great um there are critics of course because they don't you know they don't want to pay for it you know, if these are pe these are people who live in town. They've got their broadband. Why don't you? You know, but the fact of the matter is, if it were not for this kind of effort, people back in the 1930s who lived in rural areas would not have had electricity, were it not for FDR's rural electrification programs. It's what allowed electric co-ops to form. Sure. And so if you get your electricity from a rural co-op, you are literally getting your electricity the way FDR designed it to be 85 years ago. Wow. That's crazy. Um so he it was that he was actually very forward thinking and we can we those who live in the country can basically thank him retroactively for their electricity. Um it I it may be a little controversial to some but that's the context of it. it. You know, you can't argue with that, to be honest. Um, I consider broadband, as do many other people, to be in the same league as any other utility, a necessary grid-based utility like electricity, like water. What are your thoughts on this? So personally, I, I don't, I think that I, I 
see that in the same way. Like you should have access to broadband and affordable broadband, just like you have access to electricity, gas, and a phone. I mean, those are extremely important pieces. Um, we see uh, in communities and neighborhoods where there's economically disadvantaged, there's no there's no um, incentive for uh, for-profit companies to go into those neighborhoods and lay fiber and lay high-speed internet. And um, what we're finding is there is a digital divide. That is not a, that is, and the internet is the great equalizer. I mean, it really gives you access to a lot of information that can be really relevant to your work and what you're doing um, and, and, and create industry also. Um, so we have been advocating, um, we've been working with this, you know, we've been working with the city of Amarillo and other partners to get, um, there's a lot of federal dollars that are coming down as COVID relief, um, once in a lifetime funding that's coming down and really looking at what, what would help our, um, communities thrive. And, 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 you know, COVID showed us just how disparaging it is to not have access to internet. And you know, what's really helped move the needle on this is, um, the, our, our state representatives that are in our area, when they were during COVID, they were doing like virtual meetings and committee meetings and they were cutting in and out. And so that's actually been a great uh, win because they saw how important it was for them personally. And they've been advocating for that at the state level to make sure that all parts of the state, um, even the most remote, which, you know, where 90% of the resources are and only 10% of the population is, it's extremely important. Um, you think about even just in the agricultural industry, they use, they use Wi-Fi and different types of internet usage to, to check on their animals and to, to feed them properly and make sure that they're doing what they're supposed to with webcams and different things. And so it is, it's not just having access to computers for students and people. And it's also industry driven. And I mean, Childress, Texas just got um, uh, fiber laid in their community. And guess what happened? Starbucks is coming in. All these different companies are starting to come into that community because they can do business there. So it is an economic driver, but it's also a very important need for students to, and, and parents and mental health access. And, you know, I visit my doctor every once in a while through, um, virtual meetings when I can't get to the office and he's taking virtual meetings. So it's, it, it, it is not one of those things. I think we can no longer say the internet is a luxury. The internet is a necessity and we're seeing that and COVID really showed us. I mean, you as a professor having to teach online all the time and having to make sure that your students had access to internet all the time. And I mean, it is just, it, it's become a piece that that's not just a luxury. It's a necessity. You're absolutely right. I heard quite a few stories during COVID of our students who were sent home and then had to take classes online, not able to function. And it wasn't because they couldn't afford the broadband they just couldn't get it right where they were and and I'm grateful I I have it out at my place because I wouldn't have been able to teach it's hard to hold a zoom meeting when you've got a wobbly <laughs> connection <laughs> yeah and especially when you're you think about the professor can't give the lecture and the student can't learn and take the t I mean it's just it creates a real issue 
in in a, an inequitable situation. Right, and and our classes these days, our online classes in particular, they're not text based anymore like they were twenty five years ago. We've got video and audio, and that requires a lot more bandwidth than just a bunch of text. Yes, and the um we have we led an effort through December through this time to for people to log on to um, fcc.gov and, and check and see what is being reported as their internet coverage and then to, to, to either agree or disagree with that internet coverage that it's affordable and that you have really you actually have high-speed internet because the FCC's idea of high-speed internet is a little bit outdated compared to the needs of what's happening with video, like you said, video and things. So uh, I would tell anybody to log on to the F FCC website and to um, tell the FCC this map is wrong because obviously contractors got paid for the work and they've said, we've done this, this is, it's, it's perfect. And sometimes it's not. And so we got to make sure that the FCC knows that so that they can hold those other companies accountable and fix that problem. Um, you, you've mentioned some of your educational efforts, uh, especially K through 12. Um, what are you doing to help make university life a little more affordable? Are you giving scholarships or grants or what? Sure. So we um, have a pretty robust, uh, we call it the general scholarship application. Students in the Texas Panhandle and outside the Texas Panhandle, and I mean, our scholarships are set up by individuals. So uh, the funds are special. I mean, there's some funds that are set up for only certain counties, only certain institutions, only certain students. And then there's just broad appeal. As long as you're going to uh, a West Texas uh, higher education institution, then you'd be eligible for that. That application always opens in December 1st and goes all the way through the first uh, or second Friday at noon. And those can range in, in from a thousand to $20,000 in scholarships. We are, um, in the process of awarding those right now, we have an external committee that makes those decisions and ranks those scholarships. It's a pretty robust uh, <laughs> group. They really work hard. They read all the essays. They read all the letters of recommendation. There's just a lot that goes into it. And then we award those scholarships for the for the next fall. And we have scholarships for students who are seniors going into transitioning into higher education and for students who are, there's a lot of, there's a new kind of trend in scholarships called completer scholarships, which are for juniors and seniors uh, in college to complete their degree plan. Uh, because there seems to be a breakdown um, for uh, just in those third and fourth year, it, there's a, there's an issue that, that donors have seen. And so they've made, they've made scholarship funds in that way. There's also uh, scholarships for students who are freshmen and sophomore in college as well. There's a lot of those things. So our our kind of goal, and we create innovative things like ACE and Thrive, which is meant to um, increase student participation in higher education. And then, you know, when we did Thrive, it's it's a partnership with Amarillo College. All Amarillo ISD students who hit certain criteria can get 60 hours at Amarillo College. And then we created a scholarship fund for students who like sometimes 60 hours is exactly what they need to get their certification and start in the, in the work field or workforce. And then the next group um, who want to complete at WT, there's a scholarship to help them pay for that tuition when they transition up to the university setting. So we have been supporting 
higher education for since 1977. And so what are the criteria for being awarded a scholarship? Is it uh, strictly need-based or do you look at other factors? Uh, we, to be honest with you, it depends on what the, the scholarship fund, uh, the person who set up the scholarship fund wants it to be. Uh, there's a, obviously need is important, but grades are important and participation outside of school is important. Your essay is important. You're just talking about, you know, what does higher education mean for you? And then those letters of recommendation are extremely important. So, um, there is not a, there's not an easy way to answer that question because there's so many, there's over a hundred funds that do probably two to 300 scholarships out of those funds. So there, it just depends on what that individual fund is. All of that stuff is on, listed on our website. You can actually go through each scholarship fund and look at um, all of that data for each individual scholarship fund and what, what are they really looking for and what, what, what are the criteria that you need. And when you fill out, I do want to say this, when you fill out our application, it actually matches you with the ones that you would that you would fall in line with. And you can self-select those as well, as long as your criteria is the same. Um, with regard to childhood literacy, I, I looked at your stats on your website. And I was I was really impressed with the level of detail, but also just what's happening around us, the change that is happening. And, and I think it's all good change. Um, we are going through a huge change in the demographic makeup of the region. And I've been here long enough that I can I can vouch for it. I, I don't need numbers to tell me. I, sure. They just verify what I'm seeing. I know here at WT, we've been an HSI, Hispanic Serving Institution now, for a number of years. And we've actually kind of flown past the baseline criterion, which is 25%. But uh, some of your stats suggested that in, in some areas of the panhandle, Hispanic students were more than 50% of the student population. In fact, uh, I think the last data that we have showed that student, that that is the highest ethnic majority of students in the Texas Panhandle as a whole. I think it was 49% compared to uh, 36 or 37% of white students. I So there is a huge shift um, in Latinos, Latinas, and Latinx, Hispanic, Mexican Americans, there's just a there's a influx of those folks, and I think it adds to the vibrancy and excitement of our communities for sure. But it is, it is definitely um, showing up in the education numbers um, when you look at student populations. So that is that was a huge thing for me. I was like, wait, that is that's incredible. Now I think that. That's just the student. I don't think that we're there when you look at total population across the panhandle, but any any year now, that's going to happen. And and what do you guys do with regard to stats of, of the, well, the population stats of all the different cities, towns, communities in the panhandle? Um, there are quite a few little towns out here that are all really far from other little towns, and yet... Uh, as of the last census, only six of the 26 counties actually grew, and two of them are right here, Potter and Randall. Naturally, we're growing by leaps and bounds, but I often feel like we're stealing sheep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think we're just moving. I, I joked one time and said, we're just moving deck chair. We're moving the deck chairs around on the Titanic often. Um, I do think that you're seeing a huge strategic focus in those those communities, those smaller communities. And I think, honestly, COVID has helped them because a lot of students who um, wouldn't come home came home 
and got remote work and are working remotely. And I think that can really help the vibrancy of those communities and help them, you know, continue to, to continue to move forward as a, as a community. I obviously that also means that they are going to have to have access to high speed internet. Um, that's another thing is we can create, we can keep our students here if we can, they can get remote work and work. That's another option um, for students because the cost of living is so much lower here than in other parts, even in our state and especially the states around us that you can, you can really work remotely and also uh, have a great quality of life and have, you know, different things in your back. I always say that Dallas is in our backyard, so you can fly to Dallas for the weekend and have fun, or you can stay here and go to the arts. I mean, there's just, there's a real um, excitement in my, in, in my mind around the idea that that's how community, that's how these little towns can stay afloat is really appealing to their students to get their credentials they need to come back and do remote work or create industry in those communities. So how do you maintain a presence in all of these widely dispersed communities? You mentioned the, the small town newspapers, and that's great. But I mean, I didn't know this till not too long ago that the panhandle alone, if it were to secede, God help us, if that ever happened, would be the seventh largest state in the U.S. It's about the size of West Virginia. That's a lot of ground to cover. And um, let's face it, we don't have airports in all these little towns. Basically, you're left driving if you <laughs> yes. want to visit them. Do you guys do that? So we have a real, so this is, this is kind of, I, I will be completely transparent and say, this is where we kind of wring our hands on how do we make sure that people in Perryton, Texas understand the work that the the Emerald Area Foundation is doing in their organ, doing in their community. How do we, how do we navigate those things? And we, we did a thing last year and we've kind of continued it into this year where we did like these listening tours, um, as we were kind of ramping up our ideas and our, our strategic focuses, we wanted to hear from communities because here's the thing about panhandle communities. They're, you can say that they're similar until you get there and they have different needs, different ways of approaching things. And we don't want to come in and say, Hey, this is how you need to do this. We've got the new thing that, you know, that's just not the way that we want to do business. We went in and heard them like, here's, this is what the data is telling us. What does it look like in your community? Here's what we're seeing from your community. Is that accurate? What does that look like? And what are you doing to offset those needs and how can we partner with you? So we've done that. We did that in six different kind of strategic areas across the panhandle. And we continually will go out and meet with our CEO meets with the county, um, the county officials and city officials pretty regularly. Uh, we've got, uh, obviously our grants team is out um, meeting in different grant recipients or grant applicants. Uh, we, we've kind of, our scholarship team goes out to the little communities and, you know, does their, their college night fairs. And we really try to make sure that we aren't Amarillo's area. We are Amarillo's foundation. We are the Amarillo area foundation. We could do so much better and we're working on that. We're working on ways to be out there. And one of the things that we do at the foundation that is also important is the nonprofit service center where we work with nonprofits to equip them to be successful and to raise funds and to be able to be sustainable and continue their important work in their communities. We have a lot of um, organizations that are in those rural communities that will come to our classes virtually and attend those classes virtually um, and our workshops virtually. So 
we've really been working to make sure that we're doing work. And we also um, have a, a very diverse board of directors that exist um, that have a presence in the smaller communities and are members of the smaller communities. In fact, the next, the two of the next three board chairs will be uh, rural women. Um, and so really worked on making sure that we have all the voices in the panhandle, especially at the board level. For the last couple of years, we've endured the highest rate of inflation we've seen in more than 40 years. That would include your whole life, right? Yes. yes. <laughs> and a good portion of mine. Um, has this affected giving? And if so, in, in which ways? Individuals, corporations, others? I can see how it might be hard for some people at the individual level to keep giving or, or to begin in the first place especially if they're trying to figure out how to make ends meet or buy eggs or whatever. What's going on in this regard? So um, we haven't seen a huge downshift in in donations and um, people setting up funds with us. That's one of the things that you can do at the foundation is set up a donor advised fund or different funds to meet your your needs, your philanthropic needs. We haven't seen really a downshift in that. Uh, often we're working with donors who have a lot of assets um, outside of disposable income. They have investments that they'll move over to a fund and different things. And so we just, we haven't seen that downshift. Um, I will say this about the panhandle. Um, often when the, the, the economic and the economy looks bad, um, that's when people start really giving because they understand the connection to need. And, um, it it is fascinating. And, and there are, there is data that shows that the percentage of income given is highest in this region and in Oklahoma. And, um, there's like a little area even goes down to Dallas. So, um, these, this is the most generous place in the nation. So I, it, it hasn't, we haven't seen a downshift in that. What are AAF's plans looking into the short and long term? Any new areas of focus, or are you going to stick with the three that you've got? I think that um, we do not need to add any more focus areas <laughs> at this point. We're kind of new at this. You know, we've never really done focus things like this. And so it's really uh, catapulted our work. It's created, you know, one of the things that the foundation we can do because we're apolitical, we don't really take sides on things. We can really convene people together that maybe they wouldn't talk to each other um, if they did that on their own. But because we are really working for the better of the community, we can convene a lot of folks together. And we've done that over the time that I've been there for sure. And we've gotten people to really talk out things and talk through things. And how can how can what we're doing in Organization B help you um, in your organization? And that's just... I, that's the thing that I'm really proud of that we can do is just really get people around an idea and get some movement in that. I think you're going to see a lot more convenings like that. Uh, we have this kind of new thing that we're doing with work forward. It's part of our economic opportunity idea of like, we're trying to get organiz companies to understand that um, one of the barriers to them getting employer employees to show up to work and to be there is access to uh, childcare. And that is a huge hindrance uh, that I think that sometimes businesses may not see when they're thinking about um, their workforce. And so we've been working to really educate uh, a group of folks and and how just really start a conversation on what does it look like for your for your company to be successful. 
obviously there's a workforce shortage in, in many places. Um, and so maybe that's one of the barriers and just kind of getting them to see, um, from data, it's a data informed conversation for sure. What can we all do to become involved? <laughs> well, you can't, God, that's a really big question. I know it. <laughs> <laughs> so I will say, um, you know, we have a lot of groups, a lot of each one of our, um, strategic focus areas has groups that are informing those strategic focuses. Um, please call us at the foundation. It's, you know, you can find our phone number and call us. That will be, we would love to talk to you about, you know, what your kind of, what, what your thoughts are, where, where you, where you're coming from, your unique perspective. We'd love to hear those things because we admittedly don't have all the answers and that's, um, a little scary, but also like, we want people to understand we're not telling you that we have all the answers, but we see how important this work is and you have all the answers. Let's all work together as a community and make our communities thrive. So we would love for anybody to be a part of those things that we're working on. That's great. And we can always just go to AmarilloAreaFoundation.org yes. and find your the phone The longest number. URL in all of history. I'm it kidding. is. One of the longest. <laughs> <laughs> After the break, we'll take a look at how COVID affected the Amarillo Area Foundation and how it met area needs in what was the most trying time of our lives. There's a reason why our programs are rated so highly by independent reviewers. We are committed to continuously improving what we do. Whether it is in the classroom or online, the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business strives to stay ahead of the curve, not behind it. Join us in the classroom or online and see the difference. We're WCSB accredited and among the most elite business schools around the world. Reach for the stars and do it with a WT business degree in hand. For more info, find us online at wtamu.edu slash cob or call 806-651-2525. From the Texas Panhandle to the world, we are here to help you reach for those stars. During COVID, our collective needs changed radically. It didn't matter what people thought about vaccines, masking up, and so forth. We had a lot of very sick people here in the Panhandle. And the vast majority of hospitalizations were in Amarillo. Worse yet, in addition to physical problems, mental health took a blow. Brock, what did the Amarillo Area Foundation do during this period? And how did you pivot and find new ways to be available to the 430,000 people who call the Panhandle home? You know, this is this is something I'm really I really love to talk about. I'm really proud of our organization for the pivot that we made during this time. We were ready to launch this strategic initiative. We were ready to go. We had everything happening, and then obviously March 2020, all of that was out the window. All the air was out of the the balloon, and uh, we had in about 2006 set up the Panhandle Disaster Relief Fund, and we have always used that fund when there's fires or tornadoes or other tragic events that happen in communities to um, give them don don donor dollars that um, will really help them rebuild and make sure that they are made whole. Our board in their wisdom um, pivoted that f to include COVID-19. So we launched the Panion we launched the Panhandle Disaster Relief Fund like fundraising effort. And um, our board made a significant a decision for a significant grant dollars to go into that fund. And we started doing emergency grant funds 
on week two of the pandemic when we were in, um, when we, first of all, we were working from home. We'd never done that before. And we were doing these grant grants and communicating back and forth. I mean, from the marketing standpoint, I had to get a PSA made. I got all, you know, we got billboards donated and we just really created this campaign and then donor dollars started coming in and uh we had i think 16 or 17 grant cycles every every week or every other week we were giving grants to organizations that were um really helping um during that crisis and during the pandemic you know uh the the first grants went out to snack pack and uh uh the high plains food bank $25,000 each just to get food in the door and get them the the necessary things that they needed to um, provide food to people because we knew that that was going to become a huge issue, especially if you remember, we had lots of food shortages then. And so uh, we really, I was really proud of our organization for shifting that quickly. We were all working from home. It felt very communal. We were working together as a team in a way that we really hadn't ever done. Um, there was a lot of gracious, gracious um, companies and other foundations that put money into that fund. And we were able to send out, um, I think, $700,000 over that um, few months that we were doing that. And I really, we, we hear all the time that that really helped um, during a time when, of course, donations were down, people were panicking. There was a lot of, there was a lot of um, issues. And then they had to continue to do their work because the need was so great. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You, you stirred some memories I'd probably just as soon forget about how shopping became competitive sport. You were, you were at the grocery waiting for them to open in the morning, and you were willing to trample people so that you could get to the toilet paper aisle first. Yes, and, then and hand sanitizer. To, and, and that, right. <laughs> and then to whatever food item was running low that week, you know, because yeah. it varied from one week to the yeah. next. It was... It was almost like hand-to-hand -hand combat, yet separated by six feet, ideally, right? Um, so you guys addressed that problem. What what other problems did you address during COVID? I think we we um, actually, interestingly enough, we were kind of in a we were using Teams, which we'd never really used Teams before, and we were kind of just talking through like, what do people need right now? And we put together um, neighbors helping neighbors virtual uh, concert series because we thought first we could raise funds for the Panhandle Disaster Relief Fund, but additionally, people need entertainment. Like people need to hear music and remember that there is, a, we're still part of a community, even though we stand apart, we stand together. It's one of our things that we said. Um, and we did it. It was a seven night concert series. We got local artists that we paid to per, to participate through Facebook Live, and you could give donations uh, through that. And it was really successful. I think we raised like ten thousand dollars. But I think even more important than that was just how we brought the community together. Um, and we had lots of comments about oh, thank you for doing this. We needed to hear music. We needed to remember that you know this too shall pass. How did our mental health fare uh, during this? Because let's face it, most of us were stuck at home. Right. I think you, I, I don't, I don't know the data. Um, I can just say that what I've seen and talking to counselors and licensed professional counselors, there's, they were seeing a huge uptick in need. And, and, and the other thing too, is counselors needed counseling because they were, you know, seeing that uptick. Um, one of the things that 
that we haven't really talked about in is when you're doing these virtual visits and you're doing these virtual counseling sessions, it's way more exhausting than meeting in person because you're missing those, those visual cues and different things. And so you have to be on the whole time. So I can imagine that our counselors and I know, I mean, I went to counseling virtually during COVID and it was exhausting because you, you just naturally aren't, you're not in the room with people and reading body language and visual cues and those things. And so, um, all of the data shows that it was a very tumultuous time, um, for all populations, I believe, um, especially kids who, I mean, while they had the longest spring break ever also, um, were having to be taught by their parents and it just created dynamics in houses that I think it was, it was very difficult. I know I was teaching my kids and I was like, I don't, now that I've thought about this since first grade. (laughs) So it was, it was difficult. I mean, we are social animals. That's the nature of being humans. And um, even though we can all function now with, with our broadband internet, we can work, we can study, we can do all these things from afar. Um, We can communicate with people via social media, but well, I know there's some people who would probably snicker at what I'm about to say Social media still isn't uh, a reasonable facsimile of sure. the real face-to-face interaction. <laughs> yeah, it's not, and it's not reality often. So, it and I think that created I think that creates mental health concerns. You know, you hear of young people. There is data that suggests that young people are have higher anxiety and things because they are on social media and there's, you know, you're seeing the highlight reel of somebody's life and you know, the reality of your life. So that creates a disconnect from you thinking that you, I'm just, I'm just a failure. I'm just, I'm just feeding my dogs regular food, not fancy food. You know, like there's just that whole competitive thing. I think that's one of the things of social media that I hate is that we just compete with each other for, for what? I, I had friends from around the country and uh, we gathered for Zoom meetings. So, you know, it was just like the Brady Bunch with all the, you know, the 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 two by two matrix of talking heads. And and it was great to do that. It was it was better than nothing. Absolutely. Basically. But it, it would have been so much more fun to meet at a restaurant or, or a bar or a coffee shop to really talk about something and, and just have a little bit. Well, a three-dimensional engagement as opposed to 2D. And uh, I'm glad we all survived it, but I don't know that I want to go back to that. Yeah, I don't think I want to do that again. I will tell you that for me personally, I'm a very extroverted person, but it put me in touch with the introverted part of me in a way that I was like, maybe I'm not so extroverted. And so it was actually a really good lesson in that for me. Did you have to put any of your other mission items on the back burner during COVID so that you could attend to more pressing needs? Uh, absolutely. We were, we were ready to roll out our strategic focus areas and really change the way we were doing grants. And we just scrapped that for the whole year. We did not change our scholarship program. Um, we did not change the Panhandle Gibbs program. Um, we knew that those would be really important pieces for the community. Um, and that, um, they were going to be necessary for, we changed the way that we did them virtually. And we, you know, we made them more accessible to students. But um, we just knew that, and into organizations, we just knew that we couldn't leave those things on the table. As a professional, what did you learn as a result of COVID? You know, I will be honest with you. I uh, had 
two days to launch a campaign for the Panhandle Disaster Relief Fund. And it really, it was really like, what's important and what's not important? You know, I can sometimes get mired down in, I want perfection. I want it to be perfect. And what I've learned is that sometimes you just have to get the message out and rely on partnerships and friends and relationships to help you with that. And I think I learned that I'm a really good worker, um, remote worker. Like I, <laughs> I joked with my boss and said, you know, my commute is now five steps. It was five minutes and now it's five steps. And so I'm, I'm the worst manager I've ever had because I would get up at 3am with an idea just cause like I had all this time to think because, you know, we were, we were at home and I'd get up at 3am with an idea and just kind of hammer something out and then go back to bed. But I mean, I uh, learned a lot about who I am and what is important to me. And really, I learned about the flexibility of the Emerald Area Foundation. That's really, I think, what makes us so um, important is that we can flex our ideas really quickly. And we have the flexibility. You know, donors have a lot of flexibility to give to us because they can really do whatever they want to do. Um, they can meet their philanthropic needs. And then um, I think it put a huge spotlight for us and for me on, because I wasn't really into this idea of changing to these strategic initiatives, I, I'll, if I'm honest, but it put a glaring light on how important those three strategic focus areas are um, for the organization. And I adapted almost immediately. When we come back, we'll take a look at how Brock weathered COVID at the personal level. Let's just say we're seeing a whole lot less of him these days. The demand for professionals in data analytics and information systems far exceeds the supply, which is why the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business developed the Masters of Science in Computer Information Systems and Business Analytics degree program. Already, external reviewers have ranked it among the highest IS programs in the nation. We are an AACSB accredited college and among the most elite business schools around the world. Available completely online, this program will help you transform businesses and propel them far into the 21st century. Data mining, data analytics, and data science are keys to your success, and we provide the key to unlock your future. Reach for the stars with a West Texas A&M Master's in Computer Information Systems and Business Analytics. For more info, find us at wtamu.edu cob or call 806-651-2500. From the Texas panhandle to the world, we're here to help you reach those stars. COVID found all of us living our lives very, very differently. For many of us, it meant working remotely and isolating from all but the closest of family members. We shopped in stealth mode. We were masked up. We didn't want to get near people and all that. We became Zoom experts, and we learned how to be hermits. Some took the opportunity to learn how to cook. Um, I know I did, uh, because dining out was pretty much out of the question. Others took to doing huge puzzles or catching up on their streaming shows. And then there are some who seize the moment to work on personal health and well-being by going on diets and increasing physical activity, whether it was indoors or outside. Brock is one who realized quickly that running is a sport, a very beneficial one, that can be done in isolation, yet also in the great outdoors. I followed along on Facebook as he reached his new goals, both in uh, terms of physical fitness and weight. 
He's truly one of the victors during what was otherwise a pretty dark, drab chapter in our history. What did you do, first of all, to get out the door and then start burning all those calories? Well, I mean, you kind of have to understand the dynamics of what was happening in my life. And I haven't really ever, you know, I haven't said this in a public forum, but I will. Um, in November of 2019, uh, my ex-wife and I decided to get divorced. And so we had separated and I was living actually in Canyon and um, in the time and I was commuting to work, you know, that first three months and I was going out to the gym because I knew that I, I knew that if I didn't go to the gym, my mental health was going to really lapse. Now, flash to March 2020 and I am now working from home. My gym is closed. I'm now a first grade teacher or a kindergarten teacher and a preschool teacher. And I have all of these things happening. All this world is shutting down. And I thought, I was like, I'm going to get in a real bad place if I don't just start running or doing some kind of physical activity. So I just started running and I ran a 5K and then I kind of started adding where I was living was, there was about five miles of road out in the neighborhood that I was living in. And so I was able to just start running and I loved it. I love the way I felt. It helped me with my work. It helped me separate work, home life, because I could think about things that I wanted to do at work and some of the best, some of the best mental health things come to me. Uh, during running. And I really just wanted to focus on the idea that I wanted to come out of this um, because I had that extra pressure of going through a divorce and uh, working from home that I wanted to come out of this as a different person. Um, I originally lost about 80 pounds um, running and I was running about 30 to 40 miles a week completed, you know, multiple 10 Ks, multiple five Ks, a half marathon, I'm not ever doing a marathon. That's the next question is, when are you going to do a marathon? That is never going to happen because every time I finish a half marathon, I think this is only halfway. I don't think I could go more. And I don't. And here's the other thing. I'm not running. I'm not trying to get a nine minute mile. I'm just, it's just leisurely running. I stop when I need to stop. Um, after about two miles, I usually stop and walk for a little bit because I don't want to kill my knees. I don't want to, I'm not out there to try to kill myself. I'm honestly too cheap to go to therapy twice a week. So it is like my second therapy session to be out on the road. Did you uh, start with baby steps or did you just dive right into this? I started running about a mile. I just was like, let's just do a mile. And that first mile, I ran about a quarter, walked about a quarter, ran a quarter, walked a quarter, and just built up from there. Honestly, that's how it all started. And you mentioned 30 to 40 miles a week. That's some that's some pretty hardcore mileage. Yeah, I was going through shoes every two months. It was crazy. <laughs> and what about food? Did you eliminate certain things, cut back on other things, or, or did running just make all the pounds melt away? You know what? I really started to focus on what I was eating, and I, I typically don't eat a lot of protein. I'm more of a I'm more of a vegetable person, but I made myself like, like protein more and um, really started taking protein shakes and really focusing on um, eliminating sugar where I could. I mean, I still have sugar, but it's, I'm kind of to the place where, I mean, I don't, I haven't had sodas and like, I don't drink sodas. I've never, I haven't done that in like a long time, but I started to really eliminate some of those things and, and really think about my gut health and, and really, I don't even crave that stuff anymore. I don't even like when I eat sweet stuff now, it's like, Oh, it's too sweet. 
it was that was the real gift of COVID was understanding that mind body connection and understanding fitness and nutrition connection. It really helped me. Um, uh, and I've gained a little bit of the weight back. I'm not going to lie. I'm not running quite as much as I was during COVID. I'm still running pretty regularly and doing, I've actually found yoga and I love it even more than I like running because there's so much mental health that, um, is involved in yoga, mental health, like help. And so I've actually been doing yoga. I love, I actually really love it. So that's great. Um, I, I know others around here who did likewise during COVID. They, they used the time productively and, and it wound up to be one of the best experiences they ever had during a, a horrible, terrible time. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think, you know, I, I honestly, when COVID, when the shutdown happened, I was already kind of in a dark place because I was going through a really, you know, a, a divorce. And so it kind of <laughs> leveled the playing field. Everybody was kind of miserable. And so, you know, we moved happy hour to three and had fun and it was, it was not, it was great. You know, it was great because I was with my family and I was actually living with my sister and we and her kids and my kids and just my mom would come out there. And, and so we just, and we just had, we actually made the best of it. You know, did you have any accountability partners in this, uh, or running pals or anything? I did have a couple of friends that were encouraging and talking about it and understanding how important it was to my mental health. Um, my accountability, I, I wasn't trying to lose weight. It wasn't like a thing I was thinking of. It was really just, I understood that if I was, if I was going to be mentally okay, physically okay, and emotionally okay, and spiritually okay, that those four things are really important balance to be balanced in my life. And so it just naturally gets you to the place um, when you kind of decide on those things. And, you know, when you're already in a dark place, it, everything looks like light. So um, I just started running towards things that I think were important. And so nutrition and spirituality and um, running were kind of that triune of things. So, so when you were peaking before, you know, before we started returning to life as it was, you know, pre-COVID, what kinds of times were you turning in on a 5K or a 10K? My best time on a 5K, I believe, was uh, 29 minutes. I think it was right around there. My 10K, my best time, I can't remember that, but I finished the half marathon last year. My mom died a year ago, and um, I ran a half marathon in her honor, um, the Hope and Healing Place half marathon. And I believe I did it in less than three hours. I think I did it in two hours and 30 minutes. And I was really proud of that time. It was, listen, 13 minute miles are great for me. In fact, when I started running, my doctor was like, hey, I just want, there's just a couple of things. If you want to run, I want to talk to you about as your doctor. And I was like, okay. And he's like, pay the money for the shoes, get the shoes that complement your run to take collagen every day for your joints and, um, the third was do not try to get down to a nine minute mile, just run leisurely and have fun. So, um, there were times my, my best mile, I think was nine minutes and two seconds. So, I mean, that's what it is. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> I'm not a speed runner. I'm a, I'm a leisurely runner. Yeah. But you're a finisher and yes, that's the important that's the part. Thing. Yes. Yeah. Okay. How'd this affect the rest of your life? I mean, everything from your basic self-confidence to your performance on the job. I mean, I take it you feel a lot better. You look a lot better, right? 
You know, I think that um, there's a lot of factors. Uh, there was a lot going on in my life, but I feel like I'm doing some of the best work I've ever done. And I really am proud of the work that I'm doing. I'm proud to be a part of the organization that I am. Um, I think it's made me a better uh, dad. I have a lot more empathy. We, you know, we, my girls and I have conversations. We sit down and talk about mental health and, you know, how are we feeling when, how do we, what do we do when we don't feel good? How do we work through those things? What are our self coping mechanisms? And just, um, it really allowed me to, um, the freedom to really choose myself. I, for so long, I hadn't chose myself. And so it really allowed me to, um, say, what do I really think is important? What do I think is valuable and why, how can I make that what's important? I, I consider you a true COVID success story. <laughs> I think that's great. I know others who did similarly and, and, and I did too. I, I guess I have to put myself in that bucket, but I love those alone times. Um, and I had always been doing that with my long bike rides and everything, but during COVID, I, I went on a lot of long walks. I did indoor cycling. I did some outdoor cycling. It was all good because they give you time to just get your head in sure. order. Um, your thoughts on that? Uh, I, I don't want to answer that. I think the most important piece for me is, uh, I, I didn't want to come out of COVID the person that I went into COVID as, and I was really determined to change the bad habits, the bad things, and really start looking in the mirror a lot and holding myself accountable. That was who my accountability partner was, is myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I did, I, I, I love the isolation. We worked remotely for 18 months. We worked out of the office for 18 months and then we kind of went in and out. Um, we kind of did three on two off. Then we now, I mean, it, it was a long time and I moved twice during that time. <laughs> I had, you know, moved to an apartment. I moved from my sisters to an apartment and then finally to the home that I live in. And so it was, uh, it was crazy. There was just so many things that happened. And I look back and I'm like, how did I do that? And honestly, I will tell you, it's the wisdom of a song that was in the second frozen and it was called the next right thing. And the whole premise of the song is the only thing, the only thing I can do, I can't see anything else. The only thing I can do is the next right thing. And I really made that my mantra going, um, through COVID. And I just thought, I'm just going to do the next right thing. And so I know that that's funny that I find inspiration in that, but that song, it was the right time and the right moment. And it just hit me really square in the face. And, uh, given what was going on in my personal life and professional life, and it was just, it was one of those things that really was a gift. Well, some of the best pop music ever written came out of that movie. That <laughs> Truth. Really, really That's good. true. Well, now that we're back to many of our old routines, you know, work and business as usual, how do you specifically, uh, personally, and, and in recommendation to others, maintain both the new habit, the running and any dietary changes you made, while still juggling work and all the other things? Well, I, I routinely take my lunch break to run. I will go home and put on my running clothes, run a 5k, take a shower, get back to work. Um, I will make sure that I, uh, the best thing in the world that Walmart's ever done, and I'll, and this is not a paid advertisement, but that home delivery grocery thing is life-changing. And it is because I am not impulse buying in the store. And so it's delivered to my porch 
and I just, I try to get as healthy of food as I can. I don't buy a lot of snack food. I, I do when I, when I have my girls, cause you know, they love to snack. If you've ever had small children, you know that there's never enough snacks in the house. So, but I just, I just, I just have trained my mind to think about nutrition in a way that has not ever been. I've just kind of been willy nilly. And I mean, I was unhappy and a lot of other things, you know, a lot of personal things happened during that time. And, and really the true expression of who I am, uh, became really important to me through that time. And, and so that's how I've kept everything happening is, uh, I've just, I've kept the work happening and I've kept up the accountability. And I mean, I had gained 10 pounds from, from, um, November to Christmas. And I was like, listen, get off the couch and go run. And I had, you know, lots of mirror talk to myself and healthy mirror talk. Like, Hey, listen, what are you, why are you doing this? Why are you behaving in this way? What's, what's the root of this issue? And I think that that's really the thing from COVID is that I really started to, to think about this is, this action is a fruit of another root. And what, what is that thing? So very good. Our guest today has been Brock Carter, Director of Marketing in the Panhandle Gives Campaign at the Amarillo Area Foundation. Give us your best shot, Brock. I will always say you should give where you live. You've been listening to Buff Speak from the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business at West Texas A&M University. Our executive producer is Justin Lovell, and Allison Hunter is our associate producer. Our co-editors are Maverick Evans and Paul Torres. Lindsay Bjork is our Director of Marketing and Outreach Initiatives, which includes overseeing Buff Speak. Dr. Jeffrey Babb is Director of Accreditation and is our Technical Consultant. Finally, Dr. Amjad Abdullah is Dean of the College. You can find us online at wtamu.edu cob for more information about our programs. Be sure to check out our many academic offerings Come for the quality, stay for the small classes, affordable tuition, and friendly approachable professors. And look online at our faculty blog, profspeak.com, for more insights. You can listen to BuffSpeak on your favorite podcast portal, as well as on our website, buffspeak.biz. And if you like what you've been hearing, don't be afraid to share us with your friends, colleagues, and family. Word of mouth has always been the best form of advertising. Until next time, love one another. For the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business at West Texas A&M University, I am Dr. Nick Gerlich. And as always, go Buffs! Buff Speak.